Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Good morning. My name is Alex McNeely. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's a fearful thing to have to stand up and preach after that song was just sung. Um, that you're about to hear preaching. It'd be nice if we could avoid the preaching part and not ever have to ask ourselves that question, do we live what is preached? And that's how some of us avoid it as we never go to preaching or we never preach to ourselves or to others. But we must hear the word of God and we must look to God for help to follow in his ways, in the ways of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we're doing this morning. As Jody mentioned, uh, we've been doing a Sunday school series on the Ten Commandments. And so last week was just an introduction to that. We asked the question, what are the Ten Commandments? And the answer that we had last week, just a simple summing up of what the Ten Commandments are, are that they're rules of living for God's covenant people. And we get that from looking back um, to when God originally gave the Ten Commandments, which was to his people Israel, which were his chosen people in the Old Testament. And God saved that people, the people of Israel, out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. They had been slaves of Pharaoh and of his people, but God took them, pulled them out miraculously, and told them that he wanted them as a nation, as a people, to be set apart for him and to carry out his will. So up until that point in the history of scripture, in the history of the world, um, God had made covenants or agreements and entered into relationships with particular men at particular times. So he had revealed himself to Noah and had saved Noah from the flood and had made promises to Noah and made a covenant with Noah as a man and with his children. God had done a similar thing with Abraham, a particular man, God spoke to him and revealed himself to him. But this was the first time, the Ten Commandments, that God reveals himself to an entire nation of people and sets apart not just one family or one man for himself, but sets apart the entire nation, a people for his own possession. And God does two things, like I said just a second ago, he physically, historically does something where he takes that people and pulls them out of slavery and demonstrates that they're his people by saving them and redeeming them. But God goes beyond that, beyond just saving them and physically helping them, he also tells them, now that I am your God, now that I have saved you, this is how I want you to live. He gives them commandments and a covenant for how they should act. Now that I have made myself your God and you my people, this is what my people act like. This is how my people live. And that's the covenant that God gave to his people. And that covenant is summed up in the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments hold a very special place in the Old Testament law. Um, Last week we looked at a few of those things. One, it's given as an introduction to the whole law. It's the first thing that God says to his people. Before you get to all of the rules and ordinances about sacrifices, about what the priests are supposed to do in the temple and the tabernacle, before you get to civil laws about what crimes are and what punishments for various crimes are, there's this introduction to the whole law and it's these 10 commandments that is also unique because God speaks it directly to the people. 
All of the other laws that come later given through Moses, God spoke them to Moses and then Moses delivered them to the people. But these 10 commandments, God speaks directly in the hearing of the people so that they actually hear the sound of his voice. And later in the law, the 10 commandments are pointed to as a summary of the whole covenant. There's lots of other things that come along with the covenant, signs and seals and all sorts of things, but the summary of how the people are supposed to live is summed up in the 10 commandments. In all of these things, this unique place that even the 10 commandments hold in the Old Testament point us to uh, a bigger truth, which is that the 10 commandments reveal eternal truths about God's character and about his will for all of mankind and how all of us are supposed to live. Um, And that's really what the 10 commandments are. They're a summary of the will of God. Okay, they're a summary of the will of God. Now, normally when we use that term or think about God's will or the will of God, we think about some mysterious thing that's really hard to figure out. What is God's will for your life? Right, you get up in the morning or you're trying to decide what your career you're gonna pursue or what house you're gonna live in or who you're gonna marry and you just are all torn up inside about how to find the will of God. But the good news is actually that the will of God is really quite simple. And God gives it to us and sums it up for us. It's not a great mystery that God has withheld from us, but he actually reveals his will to us. And actually more often than not in scripture when it's talking about the will of God, it doesn't mean some mysterious thing you have to peer into the future to figure out, but it means the commands of God. It means God's law. What has God told us to do? That is the will of God. It's his desire and his desire of how we are supposed to live. When Jesus says in his ministry that he came to do the will of the Father, he's saying that he came to obey his Father's commands. He came to keep his Father's law. He came to do what his Father wanted him to do. There was never a doubt in Jesus' mind about what he had to do to please God. The Father told him what to do and he obeyed. He knew exactly what he needed to do. And God has told us what he wants us to do in his word. He's told us how to live. He's given us many commandments, but God also sums up those commandments in helpful ways throughout scripture. In one place we get a summary of what God desires from us is in the 10 commandments. And so the 10 commandments teach us what God wants us to do, but it's, it's actually more than that. They also reveal to us God's character. In his commands, he teaches us who he is and what he is like. And so the commandments, the Ten Commandments, are not just this arbitrary or random list of rules. God didn't just like, you know, flip a coin and say, okay, I'm on the fifth commandment now. Let's see. Heads will say, honor father and mother. Tails, dishonor your father and mother. Okay. Oh, Oh, heads. Good. Honor your father and mother. You know, God didn't get to the seventh commandment, say, okay, adultery, heads, you shall commit adultery, tails, you shall not commit adultery, tails, you shall not commit adultery. No, God says honor your father and mother because God is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. He bears all authority and we are to honor him and so we are to honor the authorities he puts over us. God says you shall not commit adultery because God is faithful. He is faithful to a people as a husband is faithful to his wife. 
God says you shall not murder because God is life and he is the source of all life and God hates death. All of the commandments flow from who God is and from his character. And then because of that, because they're a revelation of the character of God, it's because of that that they reveal how everyone made in the image of God is to live. You and I, every single person in this room is made in God's image. And because of that, God has certain ways that he wants us to be like him. And that's what he's teaching us in his commandments is how to be godly, right? Have you ever thought about that? To be godly, like God in his character and to follow in his character and his ways. And this applies to all people everywhere because we are all made in the image of God. We see this when Paul is preaching to a bunch of non-Jews in the city of Athens. And the Apostle Paul says this in his sermon. He says, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has made it abundantly clear to the world what his will is through his commandments, but then also through sending his son to keep those commandments. And it's by the standard of Jesus Christ, by that standard that every man on the face of the earth earth, and every woman will be judged. Last week in our introduction to the Ten Commandments, we finished up or concluded by uh, just kind of looking at what the Ten Commandments has to do with us in particular. And in one sense, we all come to the Ten Commandments and we're all the same. And in, in this sense, that the Ten Commandments will and do condemn you. Okay, that's true of every person here, is that the Ten Commandments condemn you. What divides between us is not whether or not it condemns us because it condemns all of us, but what divides between some people here and other people here is your response to the Ten Commandments, to God's law. Jody mentioned that earlier when we sang. And you can have one of two responses to the law of God. You can respond in pride, in turning away from God's law, in shutting your ear to it. That can look like anger, like hating and lashing out against God. It can also look like apathy, just not caring what God has to say. That's one response. On the other side, if your response is not pride, you can have a response of humility to God's law, which is acknowledging that it is true, that it has truly identified your sin and who you are. And that results not in anger, not in apathy, but in confession of your sin to God and then in repentance, in turning away from sin and walking in the ways of God. So on one hand, your response to God's law can be one of despair, of burden, of slavery, of hating God for having such standards. It can be a response of turning your ear away from the law. And this is the response of a slave, of someone condemned, of someone who owes a debt to God and is unable to pay that debt back and hates the person that he owes. Or your response can really be one of joy and delight. You can hear the law of God and love it. 
We proclaimed that as we read Psalm 119 together this morning, and this shows up in, in the Psalms in particular over and over again, is this love for the law and the commandments of God. Another place that that shows up is in Psalm 19, which says this, you've maybe heard, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Is God's law sweeter than honey to you? Is that what you think as you come to God's word and see his commandments? Are they joyful, delightful? Does your heart rejoice at the commandments of God? If you're a son of God, that will be true of you. The response of a son is one of joy and delight because a son is one who has already been graciously accepted by God. It's not a response of self-righteousness of you come to the law and, oh, I've kept that. Woo! That's my joy since I've kept it. No, but it's of gratefulness that our Father in heaven makes it clear to us how to make him happy and how to do what he desires and what pleases him. In his law, God shows us what his true son, Jesus Christ, has done. And if you have faith in that true son and in his righteousness, it is then your joy and delight to learn in that same law how to better please your father and to know that he wants you to do his will. If you're in Christ, God wants you not just to call you his son, but to be like his son, Jesus Christ, to walk in his ways and to please him as Christ pleased him through obedience. After my lesson last week, I was rebuked by a deacon and properly rebuked because last week I barely mentioned, I think once maybe, I mentioned the name of the Holy Spirit. But it was largely an oversight and the deacon rightly told me that we have to have the Holy Spirit to obey God. This is what Romans 8 says about the Holy Spirit. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. It's the, the Holy Spirit of God through Jesus Christ that makes us his sons. And then it's out of that sonship, that relationship 
with God that we are, have strength and power to obey him like, like Stephen was teaching in Sunday school about our sanctification. It's by the power of the spirit that we are able to obey God and enjoy obedience to God and love God's law. Ezekiel 36 teaches this as well and it especially makes strong the connection between the spirit of God and the law and it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the sign of a son of God is someone who walks in obedience to his ways. And so we should come to God's law joyful and thinking of it as sweeter than honey and finer than gold. And so let's look at the commandments. We're gonna get into actually looking at the first commandment today. The 10 commandments are found in Exodus chapter 20. And the first three verses say this. It says, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So there you have God establishing his salvation of his people and his relationship with them. But it doesn't stop there. Then he gives commands and the very first commandment is this, you shall have no other gods before me. The first thing, we're gonna break this down a little bit, but the first thing I want you to see is that word you. And this word, now this used to be the case in English. We don't, it's hard for us to see now, but in Hebrew there were two different words for you. You know, if I were speaking to you, Margaret, there'd be a singular word that was a different word than speaking to y'all, all y'all, all the people in the room, right? In English we just have one word, it's you and you, so it's not very clear. Um, but here, You see it in the old English, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou was a singular word. But so the point is here, even in the middle of speaking to the nation, this group of people about how they're to keep his covenant, embedded in that national reality of God giving his law is commands to us as individuals. It wasn't just important for the people kind of generally as a whole to keep the law of God, but each individual person in their own heart was called to obey God and keep his commandments. And this is true of you today, of each person in this room. This is a singular command from God to you. You, Christian, shall have no other gods. You, George, shall have no other gods. You, Ryan, shall have no other gods. You, Anne, shall have no other gods. You, Keith, shall have no other gods. You, Ruth, shall have no other gods. It's a command to each one of us and each one of you that you have no other gods besides the Lord. Whether you are young or old, whether you're black or white, whether you're paralyzed or athletic, whether you're male or female, whether you have a college degree or no education at all, whether you're beautiful or ugly, you shall have no other gods besides the God who made you.
And it is important that we understand who that God is. You see there that he says, I am the Lord your God. What he, the word there is actually, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I am the self-existent God. The God who delivered the people of Israel out of their slavery. And this is the God that you must have. This God, the God of the Bible. This commandment doesn't mean you shall have a God, you know, any God. Pick your God and as long as you serve that God, then you're obeying this commandment. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean you must be a monotheist, you know, as long as you follow a monotheistic religion, then you're keeping this commandment. No, this is Jehovah. This is the I am. This is the God of the Old Testament who then revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the God of the Bible, the living God, the creator of the world. You are to worship and serve him alone, this God who delivered this people from Egypt. There is no other God. Isaiah says he is the Lord and there is no other. Besides him, there is no God. The God of the Bible is not the God of Islam. This is very clear because God has most fully revealed himself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he is Lord, you are not worshiping the true God. Unrepentant Jews refuse to worship the true God as he commands and have rejected their Messiah and therefore sit under God's condemnation for having hardened their hearts towards him. This commandment also condemns having no God. It's phrased in the negative, you shall have no other gods before me, but implied in that command and showing up elsewhere in scripture is a positive command, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so not only must you have no God besides this God, you must have this God to be your God. If you say in your heart there is no God, you are a fool. God has made it abundantly clear in the world that he made, that he exists, and he is speaking to you right now, revealing himself to you in his word, that he lives and speaks and acts, and you must repent and put your faith in him. You must have God as your God. Many of you, most of you, might not fit into that category of Muslim or Jew or atheist, but this command is given to us all. It's given to God's people who are called to worship him, and we need this command. Each one of us, especially those who come to church every Sunday, need this command and need to be reminded that we are to have no other gods besides him. Sometimes our gods are a little more subtle. They may not take the form of some outward object of worship, but there are some questions we can ask ourselves to help diagnose if we have other gods in our life. And one of those questions is what do you look for, what do you look to for comfort and security? What do you look to for comfort and security? God is supposed to be that for us. He's supposed to be our comfort, our security, our shield, our defender, our stronghold. 
So scripture says God is, but we often look to other things and stick them in the place of God to give us comfort, protection, security. Do you look to money for comfort and security? I realized this about myself or have realized it, that often when I am under pressure, stress, anxiety, or God has called me to do hard work, I often turn to moving some money around to give myself comfort, to remind myself of what I have. Sometimes, I know it sounds weird, but sometimes even paying a bill gives me comfort and strength because it feels like I have control, you know? I have that money and I can pay that. And so often in our hearts, we look to money for our strength and our security. And that's why Jesus is constantly warning his people against this, against being consumed with love of money in our hearts and greed. Maybe you look to money. What else do you look to for comfort and security? Do you look to guns? Do you look to your weapons, the arm of flesh, your chariots, for comfort in your heart and in your soul and the safety of your family? Is that rest in how well armed you are? Your comfort and security does not come from guns, it comes from God. And guns will do nothing for you unless God is your protector. Do you trust in your good associations or your connections? I know this person, or I'm friends with this person, or this person thinks I'm godly. Is that your comfort and security that you've convinced someone else that you're godly? Or maybe you find comfort that I'm a member at this church, and I know this church is is good and faithful, so if I'm a member here, I must be safe. I must be honoring God too. What do you look to for comfort and security? God is to be those things, and if there are other things that you are substituting in the place of God, you have other gods, and you must set them aside. Another question that's similar but comes at it at a little different angle is, what do you love? Are there things that you love more than God? Do you love pleasure? When you hear in God's word that his laws are like honey and finer than gold, does your heart say, yeah? Do you think, no, I'd rather, rather go have a sandwich. Eat some ice cream. Do you love your own pleasure, the pleasure of the flesh, more than you love God and his word? Do you love and devote yourself to entertainment, to TV shows, to movies, to music, to sports? Do you love your children and your family more than you love God? It is very easy to put good things as idols in the place of God and to be more afraid of losing the love of our children than we are of losing the love of God. But we are to serve no thing above God. And if you love something more than God, that thing is a God to you, a false God to you and an idol. says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the Lord tacks on these words here, before me, 
And I wanna talk about what those mean. This doesn't mean that there's a lineup of gods in our life and there's sort of an order. And as long as we keep God sort of at the head of the line as the first thing we serve, we can also serve all of these things just as long as we keep them in a secondary capacity to God. We can have multiple gods, but you know, as long as we have God first. That's not what before me means. God is a king. He sits enthroned in heaven. The earth is his footstool and he will have no competitor in his presence. That's what before me means here. Not just in front of me in line, but before me means in my presence. You shall have no other gods, not bring anything into my sight before me. We are to live our entire lives before God in the presence of God before his face as if he is always watching because he is always watching. Another way of putting this is that we are to fear God. We're to fear God. Remember, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This is about the best book. If you want to buy a book on the Ten Commandments, you should buy The Ten Commandments by Thomas Watson. It's an excellent book. Um, And this is what he says. He's talking about this commandment, you shall have no other gods. And he has a brief section where he talks about the fear of God and what that means and looks like. And this is what he says. He says, to have God to be a God to us is to fear him. This fearing God is one, to have him always in our eye. He who fears God imagines that whatever he is doing, God looks on and as a judge weighs all his actions. Two, to fear God is to have such a holy awe of God upon our hearts that we dare not sin. The wicked sin and fear not, the godly fear and sin not. Bid me sin and you bid me drink poison. It is a saying of Anselm, if hell were on one side and sin on the other, I would rather leap into hell than willingly sin against my God. He who fears God will not sin, though it be ever so secret. And then Watson quotes, What we might skip over, a law from the book of Leviticus, but he says, he quotes the book of Leviticus, says, thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shalt fear thy God. Suppose you should curse a deaf man, he could not hear you. Or you were to lay a block in a blind man's way and cause him to fall, he could not see you do it. But the fear of God will make you forsake sins which can neither be heard nor seen by men. The fear of God destroys the fear of man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego feared God, therefore they feared not the king's wrath. The great noise, the greater noise drowns the less. The noise of thunder drowns the noise of a river. So when the fear of God is supreme in the soul, it drowns all other carnal or worldly or fleshly fear. It makes God to be God to us when we have a holy filial fear of him. And that word filial means it's the relationship of a son to a father. When we fear God as a son fearing his father, it causes us to walk in his ways and love him. The fear of God casts out all other fears. Fear of man, fear of loss, fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of Satan. When you fear God and keep his commandments, God is on your side And if God is on your side, nothing can harm you. And you have nothing to fear. And so what does it look like for us to fear God? What does that actually 
look like. Uh, I'm going to read a section from the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is uh, a question and answer written by some men about 400 years ago. And there's a section in this on the Ten Commandments where they open up each of the commandments and really try to get in our minds and our hearts what is contained in this commandment. So they, on the section on the first commandment, they ask two questions. The first question is, what are the duties required in the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. And this is the answer to that question. What are the duties required? The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him and sorrowful when in anything he is offended and walking humbly with him. There's another question that comes after that, and the question is, what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? Strap in, okay? The sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism in denying or not having a God, idolatry in having or worshiping more gods than one or any with or instead of the true God, the not having and avouching him for God and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in this commandment, ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, bold and curious searchings into his secrets, all profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, and all other things Sorry, in all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things and taking them off from him in whole or in part. Unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness and insensibleness under judgments, hardness of heart, pride, presumption, tempting of God, Using unlawful means and trusting in lawful means. In other words, making the good things, good gifts from God, our gods. Carnal delights and joys, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal. Lukewarmness and deadness in the things of God. Praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creature all compacts and consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestions, making men the lords of our faith and conscience, slighting and despising God and his commandments, resisting and grieving of his spirit, discontent and impatience at his dispensations, charging him foolishly for the evils he inflicts on us, and ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature. Now that's a bit much, isn't it? What's the point in reading something like that? Well, the point is to convince you and convince us that you are not righteous. God's law condemns you. 
If you think that you have kept God's law or that you are keeping God's law, you're a liar. If you say that you have not sinned, you are a liar. Now, the men who wrote that weren't just making up a bunch of random legalistic rules for what it means to honor God. If you look at the list, all they've done is basically gone through Scripture and compiled systematically commands directly from Scripture that fall under this heading, you shall have no other gods before me. And they're teasing out what it looks like, what it means to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the point isn't to get every single thing on a finite list. It's not that there are 87 or whatever things that if as long as we check off all of those boxes, then we will have kept the first commandment. That's not the point of writing out a list like that. The point is simple. You must live your entire life to please God. It's that simple, and that's what is illustrated to us in that, that opens it up for us. You must live your entire life to please God. And this is shown for us in Scripture by the positive version of this command, which I mentioned earlier, but Jesus says this. You put up Luke. Jesus, uh, when he is asked what is the greatest commandment, Jesus says the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Another way I have of putting this is to live as if God exists, because he does. Or another way you can put it is fear God. Live and act and breathe and speak in his presence as if he is always watching. Do this in your own heart, which means to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Do this in your own soul, which means pray to God. You must pray to him, and if you are not praying to him, then you are not keeping this commandment of treating him as God. You must live as if God exists in your strength or with your body, which means act as if God exists and is watching. Speak as if God exists and is watching. I like to tell people that evangelism is really just speaking as if God exists. That's what evangelism is. When we speak as Christians, as people who proclaim the name of God, give thanks to him, give praise to his name, we tell people about God. And we are to live as if God exists in our minds, in the things that we think about, and we're to think according to scripture, not according to our wisdom or the wisdom of man, but according to what we see in God's word. And so the summary of this commandment is that we are to live our entire lives in a way that pleases God. And this makes sense because God has set us apart, especially those of us who are in him, he set us apart to be a people, holy, just like God had pulled the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and set them apart to be a nation of priests and kings among the nations. God has pulled you, if you are in Christ, out of your sin to set you apart to a life of obedience to him and of living a life that pleases him. So when Jesus is asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? He answers the question. He says, this is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. But then he always tacks on something else. Even though they didn't ask him, hey Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? 
They just ask him what's the greatest and then he always adds this. The second is like it. He says, and your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about this last week that you can break the Ten Commandments into two different sections. One is how we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second half of the commandments is how we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus says that under those two headings, you can sum up the entire law and the prophets. Love God, love your neighbor. And one of the things we said last week is that those two things are inseparable. If you do not love God, you cannot love your neighbor. In other words, that one is the greatest and comes first. And unless you love God, you can't begin to love your neighbor. But we must also say, as Jesus is saying here, that if you do not love your neighbor, then you do not love God. This is the test. This is Jesus' test for the Pharisee. It's his Pharisee test. Because if you don't love your neighbor, you are not loving God. True love for God will overflow into love for those who bear God's image. If you love God, you will love those who bear his image, which is every single person here, right? And the surest mark of a Pharisee is this. It's someone who has all the right doctrine, all the right worship practices, all the right judgments, and no love and care for people and their souls. No love and care for God's people. No love and care for perishing souls on their way to hell. If you are truly obeying this commandment of worshiping and serving the Lord alone, then it is your desire to see all people worship and serve their creator. I don't care how zealous you think you are for God or how much you say you love him, if you don't mourn over souls going to hell, you're not serving God. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind and your neighbor as yourself. One of the last things I want to say is just the importance that we not take things like this, like our understanding of the first commandment and our list of 87 things that that means and stick it in this theological compartment for assessing how good our outward religion is. It's not enough to just ask yourself, you know, do I think that that's true? Can I come up with a list that long? It's certainly not good enough to ask, have I convinced other people that I have no other gods? You know, what would this person say? Do they think I'm worshiping? God with all of my heart? This command is for you and for your heart. Do you love God? Is God your greatest good? Would you rather spend one day in the courts of God than a thousand anywhere else? Is Jesus Christ the desire of your heart? That is the only way for this command to be fulfilled in your life. You must throw your lot in with Jesus Christ and bind yourself to him no matter what else happens to you. And if you are joined to Jesus Christ, this command is a joy to you. It's a joy to be reminded that God is the only God and he has no competitor. 
and that when we worship and serve him, he blesses us and he protects us and he helps us and he feeds us like a shepherd. When we join ourselves to Jesus Christ, the one true God, he brings us into God's family as his sons to worship and serve the Father. And that is the best place to be. This command isn't just a tool to get us to see our need for Christ. It's something that helps us walk in the ways of Christ as his disciple, as a son of God. And we see this in the fact that Jesus himself used this command in his own life. At the beginning of his ministry, when he goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan, one of Satan's temptations, he says to Jesus, bow down and and serve me, worship me, and I will give you the kingdoms of the earth. Do you know what Jesus does in response? It's really sophisticated. It's not. He just throws this command in Satan's face. No, the Lord is God and him alone shall you serve. This command is a strength and a weapon for us against temptation. And it's something we need to remind ourselves of every day. And you're being reminded of now. You shall have no other gods before him. And if you walk in that and seek after him and join yourself to Christ Jesus, this brings great blessing and gladness and joy and delight. And so worship and serve God. Let us pray together.